Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with Teos Abadia. I didn't give you an adjective today, Teos. I apologize. That means two next time. You got to store them. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll give you two uh, adjectives well, Actually, you gave me two time. last time, so, so I think we're okay. We're fine. But um, right, we're even. Happy Tofurky to everybody, right? This is That's our... right. We are recording a bit early. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is our Thanksgiving episode, so we give thanks to all of you who listen to us jibber-jabber, and <laughs> we are yeah. having all sorts of travels next week, so we wanted to get this episode in early. We are going every which way but loose here. Yeah. So all of our news Dungeons. today is news that we're just making up. We're just guessing what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's true. We are predicting <laughs> the future, but we're giving it like it's news. That's, that's yeah. Um, yeah. And I was going to name some news outlets that pretty much do that, but I will save that for another uh, episode. But we do have some tweet bag and Patreon missives from our listeners and from our patrons and some really good questions and comments this week. So let's dive right in with a side helping of mashed potatoes. <laughs> David Somerville via Patreon says, your great conversation about equipment got me thinking about crafting rules. I know these have been tackled in a number of robust third-party supplements, but I've also heard arguments that crafting isn't sufficiently tied to the core D&D experience to be worth bothering with. Do you have an opinion on how crafting can or can't work in D&D? Have you seen any approaches to this that have really excelled or run particularly great crafting mechanics in your own games? Thanks. Well, David, I'm glad you asked because, boy, do we have opinions on this. Uh, so uh, to, to get to how I've done it, when we were working on the Monster Grimoire for Ghostfire Gaming, we wanted to make a system that was fairly straightforward, that was focused on story, but still gave the players and the DM some flexibility to have crafting be a part of the game. So what we did was said, if you defeat monsters, you can use their parts in various ways. And we tied it to some downtime. We tied it to a monetary investment and we tied it to a skill or a tool proficiency and then a relatively low DC, sometimes along with magic that you would have to cast on this item, maybe once a day, maybe less, depending on how long it took. And we thought that would be a fairly simple mechanical uh, way to handle it, but also allow DMs to take that system and make whatever they wanted with it. So if you defeat a dragon, you could use its scales to do this. Or if you defeated some sea monster, you could make its brain into food that would do something. But a, a DM could just as easily change out any of that, but use that formula that we created to do their, their stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts, Deus? Yeah, um, crafting can be tricky. In fact, I think the more that it is a super core system, almost the less the less I like it um, because it almost becomes a meta game that everybody's trying to play. And so third edition where people were say crafting magic items all the time became like a, a game within a game and, and can be a little too strong. Sort of if it's worth doing, it's kind of too strong, right? 
Um, and so I like right. approaches like what you're describing with that Ghostfire Games does um, and that your author had done before. I like um, things like downtime where there's a lot of DM hand on the throttle kind of thing, a lot of DM direction. And, and that's the approach that I tend to use is so I would take something like what Ghostfire has done or, you know, another system that you like that. And then I just use it for specific occasions. And I really like doing that. That's what I find works great is when you just say, you know, hey, in this remote village that you happen across, you know, the old woman tells you of this story that if you fell the blah, blah, blah beast and, you know, a block can be made from its hide. And that's cool, right? That's really neat stuff and gets everybody excited. But it's not like where it's just this exploitable system kind of spinning around in the background that only casters right. use or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I love what you said was if it's worth doing, it's not, you know, worth doing. <laughs> and, and that's that's yeah. pretty spot on, actually, uh, in terms of the more you give players exactly what they want and a way to do it, the more imbalance you're going to get with your parties yeah. uh, or intra-parties. Um, but there is that storytelling uh, just that storytelling grist for the mill that you can really tap into if you use crafting in the right way. I love the idea of there's this monster that's about to threaten the village. You know the monster's coming, and it can only be killed if you have <laughs> X, Y, and Z. Right Now, you can make X, Y, and Z, so you better get to it. And if you don't make it in time, then you're in trouble you, now, are you going to spend the time and the resources to make sure that it gets done right? Or are you going to mm -hmm. sort of take a risk that you don't do it right the first time in order to go out and do these other things that right. might also help? So that way you get a story and you can almost see the movie, right? Yeah. As the Smiths are feverishly working over their, yeah. their, uh, their anvils sweating, their, you know, wiping their brow, making these blades that are the only thing yeah. that can defeat the were creatures uh so yeah that's and, and, that's what i want to get out of yeah, my crafting yeah and and when it's kind of like in the domain of myth right like uh you, you see this and when you're reading the books for for song of, of of ice and fire there's this sort of like you know what this obsidian what you know will do is is not entirely clear and that's kind of cool right and why did people wrap it up and put it on this hill and hide it away and, and those kinds of questions right or why are the myths right. talking about this thing and when you can weave that together oh man that makes a campaign so cool and something like downtime is a nice system where it's the nice thing about downtime is the dm has to sort of work with the player to establish its use so that makes it a not mm -hmm exploitable system right it's not just a loop they can always do you've got to have right. this time in which you're doing it and the dm has a hand in that and and that to me makes it a really nice system so, yeah it's great stuff the other thing i'd say is just right. anything like this um where you can take the mechanics and hide them inside of story bits is really great right so i remember one campaign that was a dark sun campaign i put a thing in there that there were these I think it was a leaf, like a dried leaf that a, a, you know, person in a village gave to the party and sort of said that when you, when you were in a time of need or something, you could break it or eat it. I forget what it was, but what that did was give you a sort of vision. Uh, actually it was curative and it gave you a vision all at the same time. And so, so they were like, well, I, I want to do it when I want to 
when I'm in trouble and I really need to like, it was sort of a potion of healing essentially, right? But it came with a vision was what it was. And so that extra bit made it super interesting to them, even though it's literally a potion of, of, of healing and me telling you some campaign info, right? But it right. had a much yeah. larger presence in the game because of that, that dress up that you give to it. So that's also my approach to things like graphic. Yeah. And it sort of fits in with what we did for Acquisitions Incorporated as well with the downtime, mm -hmm. where you could use generic downtime rules, but you could also, as a story, when they finish one part of their quest or their mission and are getting ready for the next, you can set up some specific things. And crafting could be a part of that. Yeah. It could be you can yeah. make this thing that will be important, or you can go out and try to make money that you might be able to use in a different way, or you can make connections to the people in the town where you know the next part of your mission is going to be. So in that sense, crafting becomes part of a larger story. Uh, and it doesn't have to be super mechanical. It can just be, okay, you want to create it. You, you, you're proficient with blacksmith tools. Fine. You can create it. It's just going to cost you this time and this money. So you're using up these resources that you will later have to replenish probably, but you get to do it. Yeah. And that kind of story dress up also, it, it, it's control for your game because you know you can't just do this all the time. You've got to find that rare whatever it is to, to make part of it. So, so you, the players automatically just know, hey, I'm doing this this one time or a couple of times. I'm not just <laughs> endlessly gaining some benefit through this repetitious task. Cool. Yep. So the next question from Twitter by Andy Demps. Um, a problem I don't hear mentioned is that backgrounds can figure in home games, but there's rarely space for them in published adventures. Mm -hmm. Oracle of War was a rare example of backgrounds actually being used in published adventures as they triggered access to information or NPCs. But you still never saw you can seek refuge in a church come up. That only fits in a freewheeling home game. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think, Teos? Yeah, I agree with that. This really jumped out at me when I saw this on Twitter. And and it's something that, that you know, we've talked about a little bit when we were breaking down 1D&D, which removes these kinds of features or um, or when we're reviewing uh, 5e backgrounds, that, that these, these features, they sort of have a, a story purpose. They tell you a little bit about what your character is choosing to, to have come from, but don't really engage the game steadily and, and always. But could perhaps have done a different way. Um, and, and I had sort of two thoughts when I read this. One is, yes, I want better than you can seek refuge in a ch church because realistically, how often are you going to need that? Like, first of all, characters usually don't seek refuge. They're, I'm fine, I'm good, you know, I'll pay money to stay at the inn. Like, like they don't need to stay in a church. And so it's almost the wrong thing that you're offering up. So you do need to offer things that, that they will want. Uh, and that usually is around answering questions. You know, and, and and having some sort of edge on a situation by by getting knowledge, I think is something that fits better. Um, and there are a few that do that. Like I think the criminal is a little easier to use in that respect. But the other thing I've noticed is a lot of the recent books have a background that is jarring with the actual adventure that they are representing. Right. So a good example of me is Witchlight, which is one of my favorite five E official adventures, but. The back one of the backgrounds that's given there is being from the Witchlight Carnival. And this is the kind of thing that's right. come up a couple of times where the background means 
you already know all the stuff that you as a player don't know. So it's really jarring, right? It's like your background is to know all this stuff. You work here. And yet I'm supposed to as DM tell you what the carnival games are like. I mean, you could tell me, except you can't because you don't know any of this, right? And it's like, but the whole fun of it right. is that you're seeing this for the first time. So it's like a really weird background that doesn't fit the job, right? Yeah. <laughs> to have backgrounds really, really work well in a campaign, the best thing to do is to curate them, limit them, and then write into your adventures the exact place where mm. this is really useful and really beneficial and help to drive the story forward by by someone having that background. Um, and so we did that a little bit with Oracle of War, as as Andy says. Right. But even then, you know, it was it was sort of limited to how, how we could do it because there are so many backgrounds out there that people might mm. choose from. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and that's a good tip that if you are running a long uh, campaign and you have ownership of that campaign, then you can more easily think through, okay, what are your backgrounds? I'm going to look up these features. I'm going to think about where where to, to use them. But from the writing, designing perspective, right. you know, design backgrounds that will help tell a great story uh, that'll have utility, right? And and that won't mess up the, the parameters of the story, right? It's like... Um, and, and even some of them, like, you know, like, I don't know what the Dragonlance backgrounds are, right? But imagine that a Dragonlance background was, you know, ex-Draconian soldier. Like, that would be problematic because part of the idea of Dragonlance is that you're revealing these threats. And if this person could just tell you everything, right. like, that would be totally, right? It, it, it's an interesting background. Right. But it's problematic with the play experience we're trying to, right? It's contrary to that play experience we're trying to create. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very true. All right, and our final bit of Twitter bag mail-ish stuff comes from Bernard Grobauer via Patreon. Uh, here's a question, actually a whole smorgasbord of questions. I would be very interested in hearing your thoughts about sort of a side quest to the ongoing campaign that is D&D's playtests for its draft rules. That's really funny. What are your thoughts on experiences with and maybe even best practices for playtests mm -hmm. for adventure drafts? For example, what are the questions you want a playtest to answer? How do you go about carrying out playtests for your own adventure drafts? And how much playtesting is, quote, good enough? What changes do you find yourself typically making to your drafts in response to your playtests? And this brought to mind an old joke in the in the quality engine quality assurance engineering field. So a software tester walks into a bar and orders one beer. A software tester walks into a bar and orders two beers. A software tester walks into a bar and orders negative one beers. A software tester walks into a bar and orders QWERTY beers. A software tester walks into a bar and asks where the bathroom is, and the bar burns down. <laughs> so the I, I did uh, QA testing in, in my former life, and what I did was I took play test adventure uh, methods from that testing of software. Mm -hmm. So when you're testing software, and this goes to those jokes I just told, uh, the happy path is the path that you expect the software to take. So the first thing I do is say, what do I expect from this? Mm -hmm. If I run a play test of it, does it follow that path? Um, is what I expected to happen what actually happens when the players interact with it? All right. 
generally it's pretty close, but sometimes it goes way off the rails. If it goes way off the rails, I know the players, if the players are normal players um, who aren't looking to do anything crazy, like put in negative one beers or QWERTY beers, then they're they're going to probably follow the path. But there are times when I'm way off, assuming that they're going to do one thing when they obviously the the logical choice is to do something else. So then I'm looking at what are the common alternate paths that the the adventure players will take, that the characters will take in the adventure. And have I addressed those in the text? So I expect that they're going to see the crime scene and go talk to the sheriff. And there might be NPCs that even tell them to go talk to the sheriff. But did I put something in the adventure that maybe gives a clue that rather than going to talk to the sheriff, they should go to the inn where the victim was staying? All right. Have I addressed that in some way? If I've addressed it in some way, great. If I haven't, then I need to add that. Uh, then I look at are some of the results I'm seeing or that the users are experiencing preferable to my expected mm -hmm. path. So if I'm telling us if if the story I expect to play out is they go here and then I realize, you know what, that's bad. That's not a good story. It would be much better if they did it this way. By playtesting it, I can usually see that. Changing who an NPC is to make it more dramatic or more funnier or however, then you can do those things. The one thing that I rarely play test to see because in my experience, it really doesn't matter, is the, is it too easy or too hard mm -hmm. thing? These things are rarely testable. I have had times when I sent it to a group of four players who I thought weren't that strong, and then a group of six players who I thought were superpower gamers, and said, tell me what you think of this, of the exact same thing. And I would get back to four people who don't have optimized characters saying it's too, it's too easy. We just stomped everything. And the six power gamers said, this is way too hard just because of the way the dice fell or how the DM ran it. Yeah. So that's not something that that I generally worry about. If some, if I get a group of people and then another group and then another group telling me that it's too easy or too hard, then I'll listen. But I don't usually worry about that. So th those are the things that I'm looking at. I'm looking at it as does this adventure that I've written work as a user manual for a DM right, right. who is trying to facilitate a story for their group? So I'll add to that. That's all really good. Uh, not much to add, just a couple of things that um, playtesting is important, right? Because you, you need to uh, understand how this is going to come across and reveal the blind spots that you have, as, as Sean mentioned. Um, but you want to understand what playtest feedback looks like and, and almost design so that you understand what you're playtesting. And, and the easiest way I know to do that is you have to DM tons of tables at conventions. And I almost think it should be like mandatory job for anybody who's gonna look at playtest feedback is know lots of different groups. If you only know your one group, then you're kind of gonna interpret everything that comes playtest wise as if it was your group when it's not. They're radically different groups. And you're gonna write for your group when you need to be writing for all those many groups. So the first thing I'd almost say is you wanna start with run a lot of games for lots of random people. You will then be able to understand playtest feedback better that's coming in. Because I've had, and I've shared on my blog, situations where there is playtest feedback that says, it was too easy, we blew it away. It was too hard. Uh, this is unbelievable, we gotta tone this down. And then a third group saying it's just great. 
and that is of no value that exp that playtest uh, report unless they tell you why. And when they tell you why, you can unlock the reasons for those things, and you can actually work on those aspects. But only if you're willing to pull that. And I've had situations where I worked with a, a company, for example, that told me, "Oh, what you wrote was too hard. We ran a playtest." I'm like, "One playtest? Do you know anything about the group? No." Mm -hmm. Don't change anything. What do you mean? It's not data. <laughs> it isn't. Yeah. This this has no value. I don't. Right. I mean, I know. I hear you, but I wouldn't change a thing. And they're like, right. "Why?" I'm like, "Well, because th that one table could mean anything, and I'd, the next group could completely disagree. Yeah. And and I don't know why they want me to change a thing or in which way. So I really don't even know what I could change. It's not worth changing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Un unless. Now, a good example of what Teos just is talking about is you get that feedback, and if the, the players or the DM or whoever writes the report says it was very hard, the door that leads into the last chamber closed, leaving two characters mm -hmm. inside and three characters right. outside the door, and therefore the two characters were killed by the things in there, and the third, the other three characters could not get in. Now that's helpful. That mm -hmm. explains why this happened. And that's something that can and should be fixed. Yeah. But unless you know that that detail, it doesn't matter that it's just quote too hard. I don't know any specific sources, but something worth looking at is how people play test board games. Because if you think about a board game, it's a really weird thing where you really kind of need to observe people play to understand why they're making the choices they're making, which may be contrary to what you thought when you designed the board game. And so there will be groups that, you know, they run board games, they'll have people play it, and they just sit and watch, right? Impassively watch and write down what people are doing. And that's almost what you need to do to do a play test, but we seldom can do that, right? We have to re rely on some written report. Mm -hmm. So you need to get that information that would have been accessible to you if you had just been silently watching that whole play session, right? Yeah, and everything we're talking about is answering the question of you running your own playtest. Mm. If you can view someone else running the playtest, that is even more helpful yeah. for the most part than running your own. Yeah, because you'll self-correct uh, your things. So I would you want suggest doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the the last bit is what's the most important thing in the playtest? Is the most important thing in the playtest the story? and you want to make sure the story flows, then that's what you're going to rely on. When I was doing my play testing for Descent into, not Descent to Avernus, into Defiance and Flan, the most important thing was this needs to be playable in 55 minutes or less yeah. and still be a complete story. So when I was play testing, I play tested it with many different groups and I had a stopwatch and that was what I was testing, right? I'm running this quickly and I'm looking at my stopwatch the whole time. Mm -hmm. Am I going to do, you know, it's over in 30 minutes and people are disappointed. Is it going to be, it's over in 62 minutes and now the next table is going to be late because we have to run with this every hour. Um, that's the sort of thing that I had to focus on. Now that's a, an edge case, obviously. Yeah. Speaking no, of software testing, that's an goals. edge case, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So we could do whole shows on play testing and it's one of the hardest things to talk about yeah. because there's differences between adventures and, and game mechanics and so on. So uh, thank you for the question. I hope that helped. Now we can jump right into our news and commentary and 
even though we only had a few days before between our recordings, a lot of new news popped up here, including Dragon Plus being removed, D&D Beyond being poised to take over the D&D Discord, and what about the D&D website? So I'm going to let you dig into this because this this is your oh, your yeah. big cup of uh, hot steamy tea. Oh, I, I was a little steamy when I read the news. So there was a uh, blog post on November 15th on D&D Beyond, which already is interesting because it's like, okay, we got a blog post from Chris Perkins on D&D Beyond when that would have been on the normally normally on the D&D website. So here's another post that normally would be on the D&D website. So post on D&D Beyond saying that the Dragon Plus magazine, the app, website and all content would be no longer available in the future november 15th which is the day it was posted mm -hmm. so it was like hey we're going to be removing yeah. this now <laughs> so you know and wow <laughs> yep they had said and we reported you know they had said that dragon plus would be uh no longer publishing that same editorial has this wording about you know we'll be looking for ways to integrate this content da 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 da, da. And here it goes, just, you know, we hit the delete button. So that was quite surprising. You yeah. can read that uh, uh, blog post through the link in our show notes. But, I mean, when you really think about all these interviews, the amazing cover art that was created, right? Uh, like, like Ralph Horsey had that amazing uh, kobold drawing. Um, interviews yeah. of staff members, uh, looks back on organized play, free maps and adventures, uh, awesome covers, all kinds of things. All of that is is just kind of gone. Um, and you saw something interesting yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, so Matt Chapman, who was the editor for Dragon Plus, worked with the company that published it, posted on Twitter this. Yesterday was a weird day. Seven years and 41 issues of my D&D work were deleted from the internet. Uh, and then these turned up in the mail. It's the circle of life. And he had a picture of the Dungeons and Dragons Adventurer magazine that we talked about a few shows ago that's available only in the UK. And uh, Matt Chapman is also a you know located in the UK, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that he's associated with that and that, that that's <laughs> yeah. a sort of karmic uh, you know, circle where he gets to do this new cool thing with D with Dungeons and Dragons yeah. licensed uh product products uh since he lost all of that seven years of work yeah yeah and i was talking that. to some friends today awesome. along with you know sean and i were talking with some friends today where almost everybody in the room had contributed something to dragon plus uh and and now it's you know gone now you can get it through the fr wiki the fr wiki forgotten realms wiki is a great place to look up all kinds of forgotten realms lore but it also covers a lot of history too and we've put a link in our show notes to where you can get to all the different issues as a PDF via the Wayback Machine. PDF's not a perfect vehicle for this because these were not provided as PDFs originally, so this is sort of an approximation of what the magazines look like. I hope that Wizards will do something and, and provide this in some fashion because I do think it should be out there, but at least you can download PDFs of this to have some record of it, you know, you're not going to get all the links and everything, but it's at least something for things like the interviews. Um, yeah, the other, yeah. What are you going to say? Oh, were you going to say something else about this? No, I was going to move on to the to the Discord news. Okay, go ahead. 
Yeah, so the other thing that came out on the very same day, November 15th, was uh, on the D&D Discord channel, they announced that it's going to be shutting down on December 7th, and that they will use the D&D Beyond Discord, renaming that to the Dungeons & Dragons Discord, even though the D&D Discord has more members. So, you know, there's this sort of interesting, like, the blogs are moving to the D&D Beyond website, the Discord's moving to the D&D Beyond site, the... Is the whole D&D website going to shut down? Um, probably, right? So I, it's interesting, this whole migration. And then it made me wonder about all kinds of things. Like, uh, you know, is Dragon Talk going to go away and, and just use the videos? Like, I, I you know, who knows, right? Uh, it's all just speculative on, you know, what I'm just saying. But, um, but there's something there going on around consolidating of these sites, um, which I think in some cases could be great and make it more efficient for yeah. wizards and that's all fine and good but also the opportunity to lose history and content right and increasingly and we see this in today's twitter discussion too but increasingly you cannot count on platforms to hold your you know valuable information mm -hmm. whether it's in you created or someone else created for any length of time right it can all just vaporize so you have to save as you go <laughs> unfortunately Right. They say, you know, and everything you put on the internet stays around forever. You just might not be able to find it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Unless you don't want it found, and then <laughs> it will be found pretty easily. Uh, but I think it makes sense in in some strange way that that they're doing everything through D&D Beyond now because I, I have a feeling that that's what they want. I have a feeling that they want eyes on D&D Beyond. I think that's mm. where they see their main, I, I don't want to say that, you know, the main crux of the game, but that's where players are going more mm. than the D&D &D website. They right? want that engagement. I'm, I'm playing and, tonight. Yeah. Subscriptions. Right. I'm going, and... my character's on D&D &D Beyond. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My, my yeah. character's there. That's where I'm going. And so that's where the natural funneling of eyes and funneling of attention is going to be and they'll save the DD &D website for more corporate for more um you know not public relations in the sense of players but public relations in the sense of investors or sure. business connections that sort of thing well i'm i'm fine with that but but uh there are things that the DD &D website does often poorly uh like say direct people to organize play and so the more you have to cram, mm -hmm. cram that all into a single website, the harder it is to do it well, right? You know, where should errata go? Where should um, organized play information go? Where should how to get started go? And the D&D Beyond site is great, but, you know, like if I want to find your old awesome columns on how to write an adventure, I basically just have to already know they exist. By the way, they exist. <laughs> and go do a search. Because otherwise, there's no way I'm ever seeing them, right? There's no indexing of all those blog posts by topic or things like that. I'm just going to have to run a search for your name, and then I'll find them. Um, but but I don't know they're there, right? There's no good. It's just it all just keep. It's just a fire hose of information that just yeah. keeps hiding itself. And so that's the kind of thing where where it's it's difficult, right? And and, and it also means that especially as we see that whatever this one D and D does, things can become outdated. I might run a search for whatever you know backgrounds and come up with an article that's all based on the old way backgrounds worked and, and might be super confusing for a new person and so there's just yeah it, it's hard right that's always anything all companies struggle with this but here we're seeing D, D struggle with it yeah yep 
Uh, well, since we're talking about you know D and D and infrastructure, let's talk about this new news from this morning that it looks like Hasbro might be selling E one. So Hasbro purchased E one for four billion dollars in 2019, three short years ago. You could buy and ten Twitter. We reported for that. on this as. Yeah, I mean, or, sorry for one, yeah. for one Twitter, you can uh, buy ten E ones, but yeah, you can buy, yeah, right. Uh, so actually eleven, but who's counting? Um, and we thought, you know, this is huge, right? This is this is Hasbro stepping into the twenty first century and becoming not just a game manufacturer, not just a toy manufacturer, but a manufacturer of all sorts of content, including movies, yeah, and streaming and tv shows and maybe even having their own streaming service where they could get into transformers and gi joe and dnd and magic and etc and etc and etc mm -hmm. but there's a report on bleeding cool that says hasbro has announced that it's readying e1 for sale after receiving interest from outside buyers so you read this article teos tell me what you saw uh, everything I saw stunned me. I, my, yeah, just like you said, my assumption was, of course, E1 has got to be this pivotal purchase. You spent $4 billion because this is going to let you finally own your properties, right? You're going to stop saying, Hey, I have a new transformers thing. Somebody make a movie for me. Thanks Paramount. Here's, you know, we'll split some money and you're going to own it yourself and make all the profit from it. Right? Well, apparently that didn't happen. And, and there's a quote here. Uh, from the CEO, Chris Cox says, following our recent investor day where we introduced our new branded entertainment strategy, Blueprint 2.0, we received inbound interest from several parties for the part of the E1 television and film business that, while valuable, is not core to our go-forward strategy. This interest informed our decision to explore a sales process. Uh, as we execute Blueprint 2.0 with a focus on strategic investments in key franchise brands like D&D, Peppa Pig, and Transformers, we plan to expand our entertainment offerings across scripted TV, digital shorts, and blockbuster films. We look forward to delighting audiences of all ages, blah, 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 blah. But it's, it's so interesting. It's like we're still doing all these things, but I, my guess is, you know, we're going to use partners, right? We're not going to own it ourselves. Right. And, and maybe they just found that to be too hard, uh, that they weren't positioned to to act upon it. I don't know. But um, but it's really surprising because to me, I thought that would be a, a clear. Smart move for, for Hasbro to own this. Right. But but uh, I guess it is not to be so super interesting and mm -hmm. it'll be super interesting to see what they can sell it for. Right. Have they added to E1 or is E1 less valuable than it was before? It'll be interesting to see what what uh the the price yeah. ends up being yep we will definitely keep an eye on on seeing who purchases it for how much and if there is any strategic connection to hasbro or wizards of the coast in that purchase yeah new news uh game rant says that a leak says that wizards of the coast will drop the ogl from sixth edition so this We've heard this rumor a few times now mm -hmm. coming from different places, from Twitter, from YouTube. Now, this came up in a comicbook.com video uh, where it appears that some are hearing from inside Wizards of the Coast that the company may drop the open gaming license from their 1D&D 6E game that is set to be released in 2024, the 60th 
60th anniversary 50th, right? of 50th. 50th, 74 to 24. Yeah, that's 50. Um, I forgot how old I was. <laughs> 27. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh-huh. So this would mean that a creator or company could continue to create 5e content, but not 6e content. Um, uh, yeah, I I've talked I talked about this already in Lord a different cast. podcast. So yeah, yeah, that was I'm a great. Lesson. Let you take the lead here. Well, I, I liked what you all talked about. Uh, it's worth checking out what the Lorecast says about it. But I, I think that it is um, it it's really very fascinating to me, and the perspective I look at this right is is when third edition had the the open gaming license. It was both good and bad, right? There were gluts in product at some points. There were a lot of companies that went under, but there were also like this enormous number of people who developed skill sets and ended up working in the industry for many, many years, still work in this industry as a result of having had that expertise. So I think the hobby overall was better for it. But D&D also ended up with a Pathfinder that was hugely competitive during the third edition and fourth edition era. So there, I can see a lot of trepidation that any company would have had but if you look at it from where it's been from the start of 5e on i can't think of any examples of it being negative for D and wizards of the coast mm-hmm. the open gaming license seems to have created a lot of focus on D as a game uh creates almost a camaraderie between people creates its own community and a a like being beholden and favorable towards wizards because of this ability to create, whether it's on the DMs guild or outside of it. And so turning that off, it just seems to me super surprising, especially when you look at what, when D and D is doing and the reception isn't so hot, right? It's not like the reception to one D and D is everybody going like, yes, please give me all these is like, these are, one D&D is changing everything I wanted changed, right? There's very little of that. Um, and so what that could mean is all these creators just keep creating 5e when D&D is trying to move forward. So it, it's a really fascinating question. Um, I hope that the, the, the kind of, if, if there are, you know, if this leak inside sources are actually accurate, that that's an ongoing conversation that can, conversation will, will change. I've in the past been against an open gaming license, uh, judging it solely by the third edition era. Um, but I, looking at it through the fifth edition lens, I, I don't know how wizards could see this as being... I, I understand that an individual could incorrectly <laughs> say, let's stop this, you know, let's keep all the money, whatever. But there are so many ways that D&D can benefit from this open gaming license that I'd be shocked Uh if, if they really end up down that road. So I hope they don't. <laughs> yeah. You, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, what, what did wizards lose from this? They didn't really lose anything. They yeah. may not have gained as much as they could have, which is different than losing something, mm-hmm. but you and I have both worked in the corporate world. So we know that the, you know, the red line or the black line <laughs> is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And if you can make more money and you're expected to make more money than you did last year, you are looking for any way to raise that bottom line. Yeah. And if if you think you can do so by eliminating 
the ability for people to create in even in the same space you are yeah. or like i've said make million dollar kickstarters and you are not getting any of that it can be very tempting to try to go after that piece of the pie and i don't think it will benefit wizards to do so in the long run mm -hmm. um or at least not to do so in a way that shuts everyone out yeah. but it's it's going to be uh fun and terrifying to watch yeah <laughs> And I'll say one more piece, which is that I think a lot of the benefit of possibly shutting this off, the, the, where I can see it making the most sense from a corporate sense, is if, if you're also trying to say, and everyone will come to the D&D Beyond site and use the D&D Beyond virtual tabletop tool, and all of the content will be digital inside of there. The more that you're believing in that sort of a model, the more that then you go, well, and I don't want external places drawing away from that. Mm -hmm. And so I can see, you know, I can hear that and go like, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from, but also you're wrong because right. the game will, will probably not be that if it's going to be big, right? If it's big, you have people playing in gaming stores and in their basements and at parks and everywhere, right? And the expression of it is wide and open. The, if you try to put into some funnel, you may control a larger percentage of that profit, but now that will become a smaller stream because it can only be but so big if you really funnel it down that way. And one of the things I really haven't thought about until I'm just discussing it with you here yeah. is, you know, these rumors coming out of Wizards of the Coast, the people that are going to make this decision are high, high up on the, on the food chain. Uh, they have C's. In, in their titles right they have vice president in their titles the people that aren't going to make this, this decision are the people who are most in touch with the game and with the community and it makes me believe the rumors more when i think that you know what maybe it's somebody who realizes what a horrible decision it would be to do it and they're leaking this information even if it's not 100 percent true mm -hmm. they might not even know but to leak it out there to let the people in charge know what the community thinks about right. this, right. what a bad idea it is, and that might help keep it from happening. Yeah, uh, I can only hope. Yeah, I mean, just and it's as simple as someone might look and say, "Hey, you know, Ghostfire's making this grim hollow thing. We want to do some some scary horror laden stuff. You know, why they're taking away our money." But when you look at how many people have made horror things using the mm -hmm. open gaming license, you realize wizards cannot make all those things. Sure. It only works when it's in the third party arena. And that's the strength of it, right? That provides all yeah. these different ex expressions at scales and volumes that work for those companies that would not work for wizards. And wizards does not want, if you turn that off, all these other companies will do things that are actually really competitive with you rather than being in line with you right, right? <laughs> and bolstering exactly you. exactly yeah. uh there was an interesting uh blog article from jason tondro a senior designer at wizards of the coast about how he landed his job at paizo and then how he landed the job at wizards of the coast um, so he was formerly an editor and a designer at paizo working on <clears throat> uh both pathfinder and starfinder yeah and then he left Paizo to join Wizards of the Coast. 
So his article was how I got the best job in gaming on his blog. Um, and he shared his experiences and tips for landing jobs at these companies. So this is a very interesting read if you want to work at a larger game design firm, or if you're just curious about, you know, what the process would be and what types of skills are required. Um, he, he shared some salary information. So in his initial position at Paizo, um, he is making double what he did at Paizo. Yeah, at Wizards. Initially, double. Yeah. Double. Yeah. And he was making about $50,000. And now he's work, He's making a six-figure income working at Wizards of the Coast with bonuses and with yeah. other benefits that he likely was not getting at Paizo. And he didn't say um, it in this blog entry, but, uh, well, he did say in this blog entry that that 50000 was after getting a raise, a substantial mm -hmm. raise and, and position change within Paizo. But he, what he didn't say that he had said before on Twitter was that at, while at Paizo, he would work weekends to gain the supplemental income required to pay rent and other costs. Mm -hmm. And right. so it's like that 50,000 is, and he does say here, it's not enough. You know, they were, I think, applying for rent control department or something at the time, right? So like the 50,000 was right. not enough to survive. And then he goes to wizards and doubles it, which is, that's yeah. something. Yep. And, uh, and living in Seattle, you know, $50,000 isn't going to go as far as 50000 might go elsewhere. And what do you um, think about what he said regarding the pipeline of, of sort of talent? Yeah, it, you know, it, it made perfect sense to me. Um, there's always been this sort of, um, I, I used to call Paizo like the farm team of mm -hmm. of wizards of the coast right you like would baseball if you mm -hmm. if you if you got yeah that, that's a sports reference uh mike shay um so <laughs> if you uh if you know if you if you got let go from wizards yeah you you could generally safely land a a gig at paizo mm -hmm. and then if you got experience and wizards was looking for someone the skills that you learned that you developed at paizo would generally translate pretty well to wizards of the coast which is why we see a lot of people from Paizo, not just game designers, but marketing folks and and you know support staff and all sorts of things, editors uh, coming over to to work at Wizards after that. Yeah. So it it it, it makes perfect sense. The only thing that I I would warn people is everybody's path in this industry mm -hmm. is different. Um, you know, I've talked to people who have like, like Jason, who toiled away with very low wages and long hours and lots and lots of things. And they finally got this shot and they made it. Um, you know, I worked for free for so many years with Adventures League before I got paid for a, a dime of my writing. Um, and sometimes it was literally a dime, it seemed like, uh, you know, getting a chance to work directly for wizards but there are also stories where somebody comes out of a creative writing program writes a couple of really good articles for a third-party publisher and boom they're hired yeah uh, so the paths are different and you can learn a lesson that someone else learned and it might not apply to you doesn't mean it's not interesting to know it it's not good valuable information to have in your back pocket yeah. but it doesn't mean that that's the exact path you could take, should take, or yeah. would take. 
And what I think is really valuable, if you go down that path, he gives you lots of tips for what the interview process is like at both of those companies and what it's like to move between departments in both companies. Um, and that idea of how he preps, you know, extensively for these for the types of questions they'll ask in those interviews. Um, that's that's pretty, I think, useful to know if you were going down that path, which, of course, there are many different paths. But yeah. Yeah. Yep. And last but not least, we have an announcement from WizKids telling us about their new movie minis and plushies. We're going to call this the Alpha Streams look at <laughs> minis portion of our news. So tell uh, us, tell us all about it. Well, uh, yeah, the plushies are an owlbear, Thumberchod, the Red Dragon, Mr. Chunky himself, a Mimic, a Displacer Beast, and a Gelatinous Cube. And then there's a new set of four minis, these actually being money minis, not uh, plushies, um, which feature the same things, but not the dragon for $40. They feature a very funny looking owlbear, a very cool looking gelatinous cube. Uh, and apparently there's a fifth mini that isn't here yet because that would be a spoiler. So you can try to think, what would that be that they can't show us yet? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we've included a link in the show notes where you can look at that. And the other thing that I saw that's in the preposterous category of, of being offered is um, another addition to, and I can't, every time a new edition shows up, I'm, I'm like, really, this is a viable product line, but they have their life-size series of miniatures, bigatures, if you will, and Driz Dorden was the first one, <laughs> and then there was a Quasit, I think there was another one. Uh, they have a Pathfinder one where they have the, one of those Pathfinder goblin things that's life-size. So now they've added maybe their only reasonable one of the mix, which is a $100 life-sized pseudo-dragon. If you look at the link in our show notes, it actually looks really good. <laughs> um, in fact, I yeah, think just my tweet does. the other day sold many of these for WizKids because people were like, yeah, I've pre-ordered that. It looks amazing. And it's the size of a hardback book and sort of looks like it can be, you know, protecting a book or your desk. And I thought that was actually really cool. It's also not. It, it was really cute, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I I would never buy such a thing, but this is the closest I've come to saying, mm -hmm. okay, that's that's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah. If if you're into such things, that can be had for the low low price of one hundred real world dollars, <laughs> uh, and the link is in our show notes. And now on to our main topic, we are looking at chapter seven of the fifth edition player's handbook using ability scores. So as we continue our look at 5e, we've been going through the player's handbook and talking about design elements and what we might change or what we like or what the future of D&D might be along these lines. And we are now to ability scores and modifiers. And again, I sometimes as we're going through these chapters, I look and I say, we're not going to be able to discuss anything cool. This is pretty basic stuff. I don't know what we're going to say. <laughs> and then as I start to think about it more, I'm like, okay, you know, this is super important. And there are some fun things that we can talk about. It's also so, and ability scores just, are one of those things. It's also like when you think about it, you're like, wait, this is chapter seven, yet it feels sort of fundamental to the game. Yeah. But they've told us enough about it that the previous chapters sort of worked and those were all focused on character creation. So now it's like we're even all the way in chapter seven and they go, hey, here's how to really play through the game, which is a fascinating thing, right? Yeah. 
and I think it makes sense in if you are trying to just get new players into the game, the information they get about creating a character does its job, mm-hmm. and then you can later get into these details, which yeah. which they do here. But I wanted to focus on ability scores themselves. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we actually went through them when we talked earlier about what do these scores mean? Do we need them all? <laughs> can we make a better game? or what your idea of a better game is by either adding some or subtracting some from what's currently there. Um, if you put played long enough, you just take for granted that these are what they are. Right. The six um, scores. And mm-hmm. right. Are we, are we to the point now where we can, uh, we can step, step back and forget we're D and D fans and forget we've been playing since first edition or whatever edition you started with. And and say, this, this could be different, and it may be better. Bring back uh, comeliness. So let's mean. talk about. Yeah. So what what Teos <laughs> mentioned there was a first edition, uh, a first edition stat that was added called comeliness, and it was essentially your attractiveness at first glance, mm-hmm. um, as if you can put a rating on that or really anything. Uh, but it was yeah. it was a way to get an instant reaction from someone in the game. You could add a modifier if you were, you know, super, super comely, and <laughs> or a horror effect even if if yeah. you had such a low score um, that that you could horrify people <laughs> to the point where you're almost like a dragon, yeah. uh, terrifying them. And so that was a seventh score that was in the game at the end of first edition. It came in with the unearthed arcana. Yeah. It's not uh, a fan favorite these days for many obvious reasons, but, but yeah, I mean, it tells us that, well, even D and D has had times when it played around with these. And so I think you're saying, could we like take some off or change how they work or, or, or add some Mm -hmm. or add some, yeah, no, for me, it would be take some off, take some away. But it could be if if your game is more super, um, you know, you want to be super specific about what these things mean and have a different way of gauging them that you might split, you know, constitution into health and endurance, mm-hmm. right, or something like that. Uh, I'm just just throwing yeah, yeah. out ideas that you might want um, if you want something new. So I've. I'm fascinated by the idea of a stat dump, right? A a dump Mm -hmm. stat that is so not used in the game that anyone can just put the lowest score in that and it really won't hurt them. And another question I ask is if it's just an average commoner that doesn't have a race, doesn't have a class, doesn't have, any special abilities, doesn't have to worry about saving throws or attack rolls. What scores are important to them? (laughs) And for me, charisma used to be the dump stat Mm -hmm. in first edition because no attacks, nothing of major importance was tied to it when you're in the dungeon. It could become important if you were dealing with henchmen or dealing with those sorts of things, but so few people use those rules that 
it really didn't matter. Or you could just have one character who took just enough that they didn't get a horrible penalty to it. Right. And then they could, uh, they were the ones that always dealt with the henchmen. So you didn't have your treasure bearers leaving in the middle of an adventure. And your saving uh, throws weren't based yeah. on ability scores, right? Which also helped, right? You were doing saving throws like rod uh, wands and staves. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah, breath weapon, right? It was right. totally different. Yeah. Yeah. It was based on your class rather right. than any stats. And even, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So if you, Teos, were to choose one um, stat that you would consider a dump stat in mm-hmm. in 5e, what would it be? Uh, well, it's depending on the character, right? So if I'm building a non-cast... For, for, well, forget... Sure. Yeah. Well, for, strength or dex, usually general. strength or dex, you can dump one of the two, regardless of, you know, mm-hmm. one of those can easily right. be dumped. In fact, I'd argue that 5e almost has too many possible dump stats. So strength is a common one unless you need it. Um, charisma is still pretty mm-hmm. easy to dump. Int is very easy to dump. Yeah. Right? They're, it's almost like they've gotten the opposite of 4th edition and 3rd edition, which tried to limit making dump stats, and there are a number of them. Um, but intelligence is a common one because it doesn't have a uh, skill basis as it used to before, right? Where it, it created the number of skills you had and it comes up very seldom in saving throws. So int is one that's fairly common as a dump. I don't know, what would you pick? Yeah, I would pick strength. I would pick strength as a dump stat um, because if, if you're not attacking anything with a big weapon mm-hmm. um, and you're not worried about encumbrance, which a lot of games don't, Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of spells that call for strength saving throws. Right. Uh, there are ways to get around almost everything that strength does, including escaping from a grapple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oddly, strength is right. used to be the most important stat yeah. for most uh, classes or for you know, most characters. And, and now it's almost the least to, yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I, well, a lot what, of my characters what they did have with, yeah. that dumb stat. Including fighters, mm-hmm. right? Because you just... Unless you're your going decks, with the two-handed you get weapon, the bonus. right? Then, right, yeah. yep. Bumping up your strength gives you better armor class generally, better initiative. And, uh, and it's checks. fascinating what games did rather than try to change the ability scores where they would try to address this in different ways. Like third edition would have strength bows, right? Where the best bows required yep. a strength score to use them because they're compound bows and, oh, you know, so yeah. it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. They, they'd come through those hoops and, and yeah. So, so what do you think? What, what would you do here with these ability scores? What would you, if you're looking at a new edition... What would you want to change? Uh, if you want to make the game easier to understand, get rid of as many as you can. Uh, tie tie your spell casting. Right, you have two stats. You have spell casting and you have fighting. Mm-hmm. Fighting, and talking, spell casting. Can, <laughs> right, sure. And and you could do lots of different things with it. It would make it much easier to understand. If you were choosing a spellcasting class, you would just use your spellcasting um, mm-hmm. ability score 
If you were doing fighting, you would do your fighting ability score. Now, again, I this is just one way you could do yeah. it based on the goal of making it as easy to understand for new players as possible. I could also see, like I said earlier, making six more ability mm-hmm. scores and tying different things to those, which would give the sort of bookkeeping realist player a way to say, well, you know, charisma could mean how good you look or how well you interact with others or how strong a will you have. (laughs) Um, So therefore I want those three things. I want willpower looks and socialization. That's how you end up with the complete handbook too. And then each ability score gets its own handbook. Exactly. Uh, now, which is better? It depends on what the what you as the DM or player want. Uh, so it's not what's better; it's what would it, what would happen if yeah. you did do these things. Let me ask you uh, another one and make. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, we'll finish that thought. Sorry, if you want. Uh, I don't even remember what I was going to okay. say. <laughs> I, so I think let me it was, let me ask a bit. Yeah. So one thing is which ability scores, and and I think we could all probably pick favorites. Like to me, I'd I'd collapse intelligence and wisdom. But um, another thing is that in fifth edition, the ability scores have a maximum of twenty, and monsters a maximum of mm-hmm. thirty. Do you like that range? Do you think that's a pretty good range? Yeah, I don't I don't mind that range because that's not about modeling what a character's like it, that's mm-hmm. not a story thing that's a math thing yeah it's a so i think the, the yeah yeah so i think the math works mm-hmm. out the way the game needs it to keeping it at a plus five for a score of 20 and then with your uh proficiency bonus only going up to a certain thing you you've got the right range uh, and I like that sort of, yeah. you know, bounded range more. What about the um, every two points is a plus up or down, right? So so 10 is zero. And then if you have an 11, nothing happens. And when it's a 12, it's plus one. Would you toy with that odd number not giving you anything? Well, I think we've discussed this before, right? We bit, would yeah. just get rid of the plus... We would get rid of the number and just use the bonus. Well, yeah, and in that sense, you, <laughs> you would sort of have to say, it, yeah. you know, you, you only add one and you don't worry about the half yeah. step. And the half yeah. step can have its uses if, if the math works out right. But again, it's just one more little wrinkle that's you have to explain. Yeah. And it's just one little wrinkle you have to explain. But if you have to explain 72 small wrinkles, right. uh, that adds up to several big wrinkles in the long run. Yeah, and here they give us a, a in fact, they take tackle this because they say, you know, here's the quick method. Subtract 10 from your score, divide the total by 2. So if you have like an 18, take 10 off of it, that's 8, divide by 2, it's plus 4 bonus, right? But, you know, like they even have to tell you that so that you don't think as a new player that you got to look at this chart the whole time. Um, and I think most of us have just memorized it probably as much as anything else. Um, and then the next part here is advantage and disadvantage. Uh, so the yeah. rule... So, of course, the rule... Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, well, so there's a couple of interesting parts, right? If something opposes advantage or disadvantage, you roll a second die and take the higher or lower of that, depending on which situation it was. 
if you have both situations, they cancel out and it doesn't matter how many of them you have on either side. So if you have three disadvantage and one advantage, doesn't matter, cancels out. It's not like they are playing a game back and forth to see what you end up with. Um, if you have a re-roll, you can re-roll your cho choice of one of the dice that resulted from advantage or disadvantage. And then we're told, how do you get it? You gain it through the use of special abilities, actions, or spells. Inspiration can also give a character advantage uh, based on, and then you can give it based on various circumstances that you think should impose one or the other. Yeah. the At the beginning of 5e, the biggest controversy that I remember having to deal with at the table were rogues with advantage and disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Because sneak attack tells you that you can, if you have advantage, you can get sneak attack. Or if you're, if you're standing next to, you know, if your target is standing next to an ally, you can have it. And it says you cannot have, uh, you cannot do sneak attacks if you have disadvantage. And everyone would say, well, I have advantage for this reason and disadvantage for this reason. Since, so since I have disadvantage, I can't get sneak attack or you can't get sneak attack. And I would have to go to the rule where it says, if you have both, you have neither. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if you are standing next to someone, you know, if your target's standing next to someone, right. you still can do sneak attack because you no longer have the disadvantage. And such fights would break <laughs> out at tables, especially with you know DM saying, no, you can't, and the players of Rogue saying, yes, I can. And not even knowing why they were making that argument. They were just making it because they wanted sneak attack. Yeah. So we'd have to, you know, go to that page and then this page and show them how it all stacked up. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's pretty common sense. But when you start interacting with these other rules, uh, it, it can become a little bit more complicated yeah. than it needs to be. Yeah, I generally like it. I think it's a very nice way to to gauge uh, situations and and. Certainly advantage and disadvantage are fantastic ways to get rid of the many, many bonuses and penalties the game used to track in previous editions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like all of that, but they're, they're, it, it is a little heavy compared to some bonuses, you know, like flanking was a smaller bonus in the past. And so it was sort of felt nicer to kind of add these or higher ground, you know, plus one for higher ground, things like that. And a lot of those things you now can't do because it's just advantage would be too much. And it would drive play. If higher ground gave you advantage, everybody would seek higher ground. And you see this in, in tables where they want advantage. They want to flank to get advantage, right? And that's an optional rule, not a core rule for that reason. That's just, it would drive behavior so strongly. The other thing is that if you have it from so many sources, now it removes the, the use of those sort of hard fought ways to grant someone advantage go away. Uh, and I think I saw this in one D&D. &D. There was something that let you get advantage. And I thought to myself, well, that's, you know, normally in gameplay, someone's working hard to give you that. And now you can just give it to yourself. It's going <laughs> to erode the value of that, right? And Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting because other games use other mechanics to let you succeed at a cost if you really, really, really want to succeed. And so you know, in fate, you use a fate point mm -hmm. and therefore there's a much, much better chance you're going to succeed at what you're trying to do. And mm -hmm. that, that's the story's currency to let that happen. 
and it feels like advantage is that thing in D&D, only there's no cost for it. It's, we want, generally advantage works out to somewhere between plus four and plus five on a roll. Mathematically, it depends yeah, on what depends. the target number is, yeah. but that's, mm -hmm. it's generally in that, that Around range there. for yep. most normal D DCs. Um, so with, with a 20 to 25% increased chance of succeeding with checks that are generally pretty, pretty likely to succeed in, in the first place, advantage is, is one of those things where you're very likely to succeed if you have it. Yeah. So I like it in that sense, but it's just, as you say, so easy to get sometimes that mm -hmm. it turns into a, it turns into a, well, it's, it's all about getting advantage rather than playing the game and telling the story, just like the yeah. flanking when that was not an optional rule turned into, if I can't flank, I'm not even going to bother attacking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That sort of, I've had, I've had that happen at 4E tables yeah. uh, where they just like, I can't flank. I'm not even going to bother because I want my sneak attack or I want this extra special thing to happen sure. because I have advantage. So um, it, uh, it seems very strong and I, I would love the advantage, disadvantage to have a more story focused, mm -hmm. um, story focused connection to the game as opposed to just mechanical, but yeah. then you're getting into some design space that would be uncomfortable for a lot of the players who are just used to I'm standing here or I use this ability. So therefore I have advantage. Um, so let's move on just in the interest of time. Proficiency bonus is the next section. This is really interesting in that it, it it's another fundamental piece to the game. It's the math that drives the uh, advancement over time that characters and creatures have. It's what allows your bounded accuracy to, to also work by putting some caps on how good you get to, to be at things. Um, previous editions have had things like you, uh, based on your class, you would get, you know, bonus to your attacks and then skills might be based on your ability score. And now we get this underlying proficiency bonus. And so it's a, a, a bonus based on your level that is being added to all of your abilities. Monsters have it too. The rules for that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide for how that kind of stretches across as they get stronger. They have higher proficiency bonuses. And you add it only once to a roll. So again, limit stacking represents you have a proficiency in some aspects. So it's also the trained, not trained piece. In a lot of ways, it's really kind of amazing, right? It, it's really well done from a lot of perspectives. Do you have any bones to pick with proficiency bonus? I don't. I think, as you said, it's a much more elegant uh way to deal with something that D, D has dealt with bizarrely in the past with first edition it was the thaco charts based on your class yeah. uh and with fourth edition it was it was half your level right mm -hmm. you got to add to your armor class your other things so that, that's how right. fourth edition dealt with it which the number range was much wider then yeah. um so and i i like the lower math and it felt in fourth edition, I don't mind this, but a lot of people do. It felt like, you know, you gain a level and the world gains a level. And so it was always the only way to make things work was for the world to sort of dance and step with you, which I'm fine because I don't mind that meta. To me, like, I'm fine if the lock DC changes every level. I, I don't really have a problem. But a lot of people do. They're like, hey, no, locks are DC 15. So 
you know, you should just be able to open all the locks. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Somebody can make a better lock. But, but, but it's that kind of thing. And proficiency bonus takes away a lot of this discussion and makes it just kind of operate smoothly in the background, which is pretty cool. Yep. I'm happy with the math of, of 5e and bon proficiency bonus has a lot to do with that. So mwah, kudos yeah. on that. And similarly, we see a section on ability checks. This does a number of things. The first thing it does is it says, hey, here's a table of typical difficulties ranging from five to 30. Five is very easy. Uh, 15 is medium and nearly impossible is 30. It tells you, you know, roll a d20, add the relevant ability modifier. If you're proficient, you add that and check against the DC. We get rules for contests as opposed checks, you know, and, and it has a nice way of writing it that it says a, a tie results in no change from the current position. So if you're struggling over a door and you're trying to open the door and it's currently closed, if you tie, nothing changes. And if it's open and you're trying to close it, well, if you tie, nothing changes. And I like that a lot. Um, and then they talk through all of the different skills and the different ways that you can use these various skills um, as well as passive checks. Any, any comments on this section? Yeah, just, just a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. I could go on for a while about this. <laughs> so the, the idea that a DC 10 check is easy has always mm -hmm. sort of grinded my gears because if something's easy, then everyone should be pretty much be able to do it most of the time. And a DC 10 means unless you're proficient in whatever you're trying to do, or have a, an innate a skill for it, you're failing 50% of the time, yeah. or sorry, 55% of the time. And to me, that doesn't work. And it's not that the math is wrong, mm -hmm. because I do want players to have to make DC5 checks sometimes, because the just the absolute humor in a group <laughs> yeah. of people failing a DC5 <laughs> check uh, is, is amazing. It's true. And, but... But I'm also one of those people that, you know, you don't need to roll a die for everything unless it's going to really, really matter. Um, and I want the story to go quick. So I'm not even going to call for a check if it's less than DC 10. Um, if I'm trying to run a game quickly and keep the story moving. So, yeah, I, I'm of two minds about it, but that, that DC 10 easy has always, um, yeah, yeah, I could see always that. bothered me. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that's yeah. it. That, that's all I've got about it. Yeah, passive checks are interesting. I think that's got some uh, some interesting to it where um, you sometimes it, it leads to people wanting to press the I win button by figuring out how to, especially with passive perception, always spot every trap, which gets into the nebulous way in which how a trap is found is described in both the player's handbook and DMG, which is it investigation, is it perception? You know, what does it yep. mean? Um, and even more controversial was when Jeremy Crawford on the D&D uh, Dragon Talk podcast said, all skills can be passive and they represent a floor which you would never go below. And it's like, I think every DM just said, well, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah. And so it's no surprise that one D&D seems to maybe get rid of passives or change passives because it, I think those are some problematic angles to the game. Right. The, the, the worst part of that for me was, yes, as the DM, I'm like, but I like low rolls. And as a player, I love low rolls sometimes. Mm -hmm. But you know what that really said to me was that 
the people who make Wizards of the Coast don't care about skills, mm. right? Because you, you don't say, well, like the a passive strength saving throw or a passive attack roll, yeah. right? You can't just assume you rolled a 10 for your attack roll or you can't right feel like well let's just say i rolled a 10 and that's the floor for my dexterity saving throw now you could yeah. make a game like that right right and a game like that might even be okay but that that's not what i want from dnd i want there to be that active um, engagement you know that yeah. thing yeah yeah and you know in previous editions the the kind of the way this would slip into the rules i think it may have even been in like the rules compendium or something like that but it, it was certainly in third and in fourth as sort of the idea of, hey, if I were doing something long enough, I could just assume that I'm taking 10 on it, right? That I'm going to get a 10, I'm going to get mm -hmm. an average result. So it's 10 plus whatever your bonus is. Right. And you could call it taking 10. Um, and you could even say taking 20 in certain situations in certain editions. But, but that idea of sort of averaging out the result and what 5e is trying to do on one hand, but then goes beyond that concept, it's trying to say, hey, if a creature is, you know, standing on guard, you know, two bugbears on guard, are they going to see you sneaking up? And there's two ways to handle that. One is opposed checks, but then you could end up with sort of a random roll situation, which I don't have a problem at all, and I think you don't have a right. problem at all. But D&D &D was saying, why don't we just standardize it that the bugbears have a sort of static number of alertness, and that's their passive mm -hmm. perception, and you're trying right. to stealth against that. And, and I love the logic of that, but it then becomes when it goes to the to the side where, where the player can say nobody can sneak on me, sneak up on me ever. No trap will ever go undetected right. ever because of what I can do with the rules of the game. That's where I go. Well, and that's not right. even the that's not why we play. <laughs> this is eroding why we play. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we play for the. You know, your character is unique and the situations are unique and that uniqueness isn't always positive. Sometimes that uniqueness is something going horribly wrong because of a die roll or because yeah. of you know, just who your character is. And and that needs to be OK. That needs to yeah. be a part of D&D &D for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, we get some things on the help action. We've talked about that in past and other ways. Uh, group checks. Everyone makes the check. At least half the group succeeds. The whole group succeeds. That's awesome. And then we just get really into mm -hmm. the section using each ability that walks through every ability and, and kind of different ways to do it. Examples of play, things like that. Even some variant rules, which are sort of interesting. Um, you know, what if you want to use encumbrance as a variant? Um, uh, oh, mm -hmm. there's also the part that talks about how you can use as a variant skills with different abilities. So you can say things like strength, intimidation, instead of charisma, always being tied to intimidation. Right. But it's listed as a variant, which is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And then at the very end is just saving throws that closes down to the section, which just really tells you here's how to do it. And the difficulty, difficulty mm -hmm. class comes from whatever is causing it. It'll state it. So you're just rolling a d20 in your modifier. That's it. The only thing I would change about saving throws is make more things that call on other. It's all yeah. decks or it's all wisdom. Little strength thrown in, sometimes con thrown in, rarely charisma or intelligence, right? Let's let's make spells and things that that target mm -hmm. those those, um, and 
you know, allow players to take advantage of that and allow um, DMs to take advantage of that a little bit more than than they do. Yeah, agreed. So we we good with uh, we good with chapter seven? I think so. All next, right. Next is well, adventure. that is a show. Ooh, I I love adventuring. That's just me. I've been known to like it. So with that. Yes. With that, we want to thank our patrons for helping us keep this show going. Thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters. Uh, there's a special shout out to our Master of Realms supporters in our show notes. And we want to thank on air our Masters of the Multiverse. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, John Carney, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermay, Andy Edmonds at Necro Nerdronomicon.com, Ben F, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Eric Menge, Nianakra, Falcon Neal, Drago Russo, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville of the Planagia RPG setting, Joe Tyler, and Graham Ward. And thank you too to all of our listeners. If you like the show, you it, we would love it if you would consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. Teos, you know what I'm going to ask. Where can people find you? Well, on uh, Crunch Monster, I'm Alpha Stream. I'm also Alpha Stream <laughs> on Master Gondorvela and uh, uh, Substack and on um, your favorite <laughs> Slack channel. So or on twitter but yeah. really uh find me best at alphastream.org what about you sean uh you can still find me on twitter the one place on social media where i will always be as this ship goes down you can on? find me on twitter at sean merwin yeah yeah uh, and you can also find the podcast at mastering dnd if twitter does go down then we will tell you where else that you can find us um, yep. You can always find us on Patreon, of course. I already given you that. And you can leave comments on our spiffy new YouTube channel, the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel, where, where we divide the podcast into two, into the questions and news segment and then into the main discussion segment. Um, so thank you for all the support again for those who have subscribed on YouTube. So, Teos. We've got a big week ahead of us. It's going to be Thanksgiving when this show drops. So what are we going to do now? Oh, you know, let's go delete some monsters like they were Dragon Plus. Oh, that's harsh. <laughs> Pass the cranberries. <laughs> mm.